Well, good evening. We'll be in Genesis 10. This is not what you would think of as a good chapter to come at when you're tired. Because you may notice that we're going to deal with some genealogies in chapter 10 and 11. My goal is to get through both tonight. And um, three tall totes all said. Sections of scripture that, oh, 20 or so years ago, I might have said, I'm not going to mess with that. But we are where we are. And uh, I know I'm really building up all kinds of confidence in you for a very exciting evening. I am on my, last night was my second night in a row of no sleep. I don't know why. I'm not stressed. I'm not worried about stuff. Just no sleep. And uh, I've, I've often thought the worst possible thing a pastor can do is fall asleep in his own teaching. So, so if I nod off, someone just throws something at me and we'll get right back to it. This is actually uh, surprisingly not anywhere near dull, even though we're going to be looking at names and genealogies. In fact, what I think you'll discover is this is fascinating. It's it's remarkable, and it's not just fascinating to people who are into linguistics and, and the etymology of names, people who like to geek out on that stuff. If you're one of those, you're going to absolutely love this. But for all of this, what God does in inspiring Moses to write Genesis 10 and 11 is unparalleled. It is astounding, as with the rest of the Bible compared to any other works of man. But this is the toldot, the what became of the sons of Noah. If you look at verse 1, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah and sons were born to them after the flood. So as we get into this, we begin with Japheth, the oldest. Then we'll go to Ham, the youngest. And then finally we'll come back to Shem, because... Once we get to chapter 12 of Genesis, we will hone in on the family line of Shem exclusively. That will then be the focus all the way through the rest of the book. But Father, before we go any further, we ask Holy Spirit that whatever I have down on, on my iPad, whatever is in the notes, whatever was intended, whatever I, I studied, Lord, I lay this before you. And I ask, Lord, that you would walk us through and lead us through this and the things that are superfluous and unnecessary, Father, I pray that I would just skip over and the things that are, that are vital to our hearts and our relationship with you and our understanding of you and your way of doing things. You know, anything in this, Father, that will draw us near to the heart of Jesus, I pray would you illuminate that and bring that to the forefront of everything else. And let this, Lord, again, I pray, not be a study but a time of worship and communion with your spirit, a time of revelation and understanding. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 10 and 11 are what we call, actually Genesis 10 specifically is what we call the table of nations. I've mentioned this before, but Henry Morris in his book, The Genesis Record, said there is no comparable catalog of ancient nations from any other source. He says it's unparalleled in its antiquity and in its comprehensiveness. There's nothing in any other ancient writing discovered by archaeologists which is at all comparable in scope and in accuracy. It's 
Remarkable that historians and archaeologists look at this, often will use this as pattern for digging and studying and understanding where we've come from. This cuts a wide geographical, racial, cultural swath from the distant west through Asia Minor up to Ezekiel's remotest parts of the north. We'll understand the people who went that direction. Down through Iran, down through Mesopotamia, Iraq today, down through the Arabian Peninsula, finally into northwestern Africa, that whole entire region, we will see the sons of Noah and their offspring spreading out before us. Hebrew professor Robert Alter said this chapter has been the happy hunting ground for scholars armed with the tools of archaeology. And in fact, an impressive proportion of these names have analogs in inscriptions and tablets in other Near Eastern cultures. So the support for what we study and read here is found everywhere in different places, but none as comprehensive and specific and accurate as what we have right here. Bible scholar Albright said the table stands alone in ancient literature. Literally, it remains astonishingly accurate. And Bruce Waltke said the table represents God's broad concern for all peoples. That's why I'm calling this salvation to the nations. Because right here in chapters 10 and 11, we see God has an overarching view. And a concern for all people to know him, understand him. To know we have a connection to him. Now 70 nations are listed in chapter 10. 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, 26 from Shem. And two things to note about this before we even get into it. The number of nations, 70, is comparable to Israel. If you think about this, Exodus chapter 1 verse 5 tells us all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. We'll see that when we get through this, that all of the people of the sons of Jacob that moved down into Egypt because of the famine that's in the land, 70 altogether. That's interesting. But there's another hugely significant point to this number 70. Keep your finger here and turn all the way over to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Verse 57. Luke 9:57 as they were going along the road someone said to him that is to Jesus I'll go I will follow you wherever you go and Jesus said to him the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and he said to another follow me but he said lord permit me first to go and bury my father but he said to him allow the dead to bury their own dead but as for you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Verse 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now I start there because coming into Luke chapter 10, what you're seeing is Jesus has on his mind salvation, discipleship, following him at all costs, letting all other things fall behind you and keeping your eyes on Jesus, pursuing him. 
And then Luke picks up at the beginning of chapter 10 saying, Now after this the Lord appointed, oh note this, 70 others. And he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. 70. The number of the nations represented in Genesis 10, 70. Right? The number of people who came from the loins of Jacob, 70. Now, the number of people Jesus sends out ahead of him, and I guarantee you it was intentional, 70. Not 72. And it wasn't because, as one suggested earlier today, that he got to 70, and when he looked at 71, he said, no, I'm not sending you. 70 people he, he sent out ahead of him. Now, think about this, because in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, he had already sent out the twelve. If you do a comparison between Luke and Matthew, we know that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus did what I call the first commission. That is, he sent out the twelve, saying to them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to Israel. He sent the twelve to Israel. Now, in Luke chapter 10, he sends the 70. And the implication in the passage is that they were sent beyond the walls of Israel. By this point in his ministry, as he sends them out, he puts no uh, restriction on where they are to go or who they are to go to. And it's more than that because we see the number of disciples sent out comparable to the number of nations. Listen to the rest of this chapter. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now we're not just talking about Israel proper. We're talking about the entire harvest. He says, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. A Jew would understand that has Gentile implications. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal those who are in it, in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its street and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, watch this, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And listen, woe to you, he says, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Zidon, Tyre and Zidon, north of Israel, Lebanon today, Gentile territory. If the miracles performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida were performed in that place, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon in the judgment than for you. And I suppose that some of the 70 went up to Tyre and Zidon right on that word. Well, let's go there. But there's more. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. This is a powerful judgment that Jesus is levying. Even as he's sending out disciples, the 70... He's giving warning to what I have called the ministry triangle of Jesus. Chorazim, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These three villages, city villages on the Galilee or near to it. 
And we note in the Gospels that those, he went to those three more than anywhere else. More miracles were performed in those three cities than anywhere else. In fact, in all the Gospels, what you see is Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and Jerusalem. Those are the places Jesus did the bulk of his ministry. Now, he would fan out and go to smaller villages all around the Galilee region as well. But those three were primary. He poured it out there, and they rejected. And here he's calling them out. Why here? Why, Lord, are you calling them out here even as you're sending out the 70? And I submit to you, it's because he was sending the 70 beyond Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazim. Sending them out beyond Israel itself. Tyre and Zidon, again, fully Gentile. And so the 70 here are sent out. Why do I point this out to you? Well, for one thing, because he sends the 70, and we know the 70 not only represent Israel, but represent the very nations. And Jesus sent the 12 first to the Jew, then the 70 to the Gentile, just as Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. I'm so thankful I'm not Greek, but I am Gentile. And I am so thankful that the gospel went beyond Israel. God, from all the way back, has had his eye on the entire world. Salvation to the nations. And so the beauty in this number, going back now to Genesis chapter 10, the beauty is that it refers both to Israel and the nations, and that all the nations were to be future participants in salvation with the people of God. I think that's marvelous. Keep it in mind as we note these names and as people splinter out and head in different directions. This inclusivity, by the way, one more thing to note, this inclusivity was unheard of in ancient documents in the ancient world. If you go back and, and try and find a comparable genealogy, or explanation of peoples, what we see is nation states kept records of their own and nobody else, except that they conquered somebody else. It was always all about us, our people, our nation. In the table of nations, this book we call Genesis in Torah, this Hebrew literature, this Hebrew inspiration, this deals with all the peoples on the planet. It goes way beyond Israel. And again, you won't find that anywhere else. Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Whether that nation be Israel or America, the nation is blessed whose God is the Lord. So the table of nations, it begins now with Japheth. And in verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Yavain and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. And the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Rephat and Togarmah. The sons of Javan or Yavin were Elisha and Tarshish and Katim and Dodanim, which is also Rodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands and everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. These are the sons of Japheth. This is a brief part of the Toldot. But he's talking about those sons of Japheth who would head west and north 
and away from where they originated, that is the mountains of Ararat. So they're north of or near to Israel, but in uh, the eastern area of Turkey. Now they're going to head to the north and, and, and over to the west. These are the people of Japheth. Note that it says from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated. The word coastlands in the Bible, it's a biblical way of referring to the distant lands or islands. Sometimes Bibles will say islands, but it's not just islands. And it's not just lands that are right along the sea. It's distant. It's far away. And speaking to those or of those who go to the far west, to the Aegean, the Ionian, the Sardinian seas, reaching all the way to Spain, the people of Japheth. Isaiah 41 verse 5 says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble and they have drawn near and have come. Now in this, I want to point out a few names. Gomer is not Pyle. <laughs> Different Gomer. From Gomer came the Cimmerians or the Cimmerians, that's the Indo-European people. And they're the ones who began north of the Caspian Sea and ultimately were driven out by the Scythians who were Russians. Gomer's sons, in verse 3, you'll note this. Gomer's sons, one of them is Tugarma, settled in Turkey. So when you see Beth Tugarma, House of Tagarma. We're talking about that region that is Turkey today. And they also went, Gomer's sons, as far as France, Germany, and Eastern Europe. Ashkenazi Jews would come from there. Ashkenazi Jews. You notice the name Ashkenaz, a son of Gomer as well. Ashkenazi Jews. There, there are two names for the Jewish people who have migrated back to Israel. If you go to Israel, you'll hear this mentioned probably more often than once, but you all should have some sense of this. There's Ashkenazi Jews and there's Sephardic Jews. And we know from this table that the Ashkenazi Jews came to Israel from the west. So they were out to the west among the people of Japheth and they would come back in. So they were dispersed, driven out, but they come back from that region. So they're called Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi uh, is where we get the language Yiddish which is Germanic Hebrew in its, in its dialect. So Ashkenaz. Uh, Magog is on this list. Magog should be familiar, especially if you're a student of prophecy. Magog is the Scythians. Ultimately, again, north of the Black Sea, the Russians. And it's Russia today. By the way, further proof of this is the Chinese still to this day will refer to the Great Wall of China as the Wall of Magog. Because the first threat against China, the first reason the wall began to be built was in defense against the Scythians, who would later be the Russian people. In this list also, and I'll just let you kind of look for the name, find the name, it's all here, but in verse 2 you see Madai. Madai is the Medes, who we'll later see, especially in Daniel, the Medo-Persian empire that conquered Babylon. So the Medes are Madai. Then Javan, we say a J, but it's actually an I. It's Yavan. Yavan, not Yeva, <laughs> but Yavan. We have another word that draws directly from that, and that is Ionian. Ionian is the Greek peoples. Okay? And it goes all the way out. So to the area that now we think of as Greece today was the Ionian people, so the people of Yavan. And then Tarshish we think, refers all the way out to Spain, 
Remember Jonah hopped on a boat and headed to Tarshish? Trying to go as far away from the direction that God called him as possible. God said, go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. Opposite direction. Tubal, today is Tubolsk, and that's in Eastern Europe. Meshach is an early uh, derivative, or we have a derivative from Meshach, which is Moscow. Tyrus is the Etruscans, specifically referring to a region you would know of as Tuscany. So these are all, when we say Japheth, and if you've heard me say before or hear me say in the future, the people of Japheth were European, that's why. Because all of those names we know have etymology in Europe and north of, you know, Eastern Europe and Western Europe today. But Magog and Tubal and Meshech are three names, again, prophecy students would recognize because these three names together under the leadership of one called Gog will infamously lead the invasion force of Ezekiel's prophecy. So let's go there. Ezekiel chapter 38 for a moment. Ezekiel 38. In your Bibles. I wanted primarily to talk about this just briefly because uh, how many of you were at the Yom Teruah service back in the fall? Okay, there are a bunch of you who were not able to come to that. We did a prophecy update. And there was something I shared at that service, and it wasn't recorded. I, I want to get this recorded. I want people to hear this. I want you all to hear this if you missed it. But look at Ezekiel 38, verse 1. And for those of you who are there, I'm going to repeat something you've already heard, but I think it's significant. Ezekiel 38, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face. Son of man is Ezekiel. God's talking to him. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So we know, look north. We know he's looking up toward Russia, toward Turkey, toward the northern regions. Prophesy against him, verse 3, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about, I will put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia and Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma, from the remote parts of the north, with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared. Prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, verse 8, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Stop right there. The mountains of Israel were a continual waste for some 1,800 years. Not anymore. Why? Because we're in the latter years. We're now in the days where those mountains are not a waste, where Israel is not a wasteland anymore. It is a beautiful, flourishing country. And he says, many nations have been gathered then to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations and are living securely, all of them. And again, we recently said, President Trump has just recognized all of the, the Jewish settlements on the so-called West Bank as legal and legitimate, and, and, the, and the country, the nation of Israel, though we hear these veiled threats from time to time from surrounding countries, it is growing, it is strong, it is flourishing, it is peaceful. What's interesting in all this 
is when we think about Moscow, when we consider Russia today and look at what's been happening, and a lot of people have missed this. We got real excited about the blood moons a couple of years ago. And everybody wanted to see what's going to happen when the, the blood moon triad comes up and, and, or tetrad comes up and all of a sudden all, something's going to happen and nothing happened. Nothing that we saw. But on the first blood moon, what people missed is that Moscow, which is 1,663 miles from Jerusalem, Moscow, under the first blood moon <laughs> in April 2014, invaded Sevastopol, Crimea. And they cut the distance between Moscow and Jerusalem in half. So that once they came to that point, now they're only 892 miles from Jerusalem. Now remember, the prophecy is Gog of Magog and Meshach and Tubal and, and Russia in the north leading a coalition in an attack upon Israel, Ezekiel 38. And Russia's made a move. But they didn't stop there. In September 2015, Russia moved down into Latakia, Syria, just 261 miles from Jerusalem. Since then, they have moved down very securely into Damascus, which you can see from northern Israel. You can stand and look out, and you can see Damascus right on the horizon. And Russia is there, and Russia is currently holding all of those strategic positions Sevastopol and Latakia and Damascus. Damascus is 135 miles from Jerusalem. We could drive down to Olympia and it would take us longer. And what's interesting to me is if you map it out, and this is what we shared in the prophecy update, if you map out Russia's movements, that three-stage movement, and follow the path that they took, that they would have had to have taken to get there, it looks like a giant fish hook. I mean, vividly. In Ezekiel 38, verse 4, God said, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired. He's going to bring you down. He's got them hooked. Russia is hooked. And I look at these things and I think, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Things seem to be lining up. Someone say, oh no, are we on the verge of this Gog-Magog invasion? Is that threat there? The threat's there? I remind you that the war against Israel will end up with a devastating, the Bible says, supernatural intervention where all those attacking Israel will be wiped out in the mountains of Israel, will never even get to Jerusalem. And this is going to happen, and when I study this, and I've been looking at it for years, We've talked about this for years. Will we be here? I hope not. I don't think so. Uh, my personal view is that we're already going to be caught up, so we're not going to see this, but, but it could happen right before. It could be kind of a precursor because there are several things connected timing-wise. We know that the, the weaponry used in this invasion is going to burn for seven years. Well, how long is the tribulation? Seven years. So there may be a parallel there. I don't know. But the church is either going to be caught up right before or right after. I don't know if we'll see it. The point is, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12 says, The nation and the kingdom which will not serve Israel will perish. And the nations will be utterly ruined. One of the most important things an American citizen can do is support Israel. Because the nation that does not 
will perish. That's not my word. That's God's word. That's the Bible. So go back once again to the toldot of Shem and Ham and Japheth. And we see all of these sons of Japheth, which includes Russia to the west, to the north and then out to the west, all included in this. And verse 6 picks up, now the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, and Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Rayama and Sabtika, and the sons of Rayama were Sheba and Dedan. Geographically speaking, Ham's sons from verses 7 through 20, which we'll check out more closely in a moment, uh, settled the regions of Canaan and Israel and then south into Africa. Okay, so, so Canaan that son's going to stay right there in the, in the land that ultimately God is about to give to Israel, right? They stay there, but these sons of Ham will stay there and then head south. So not going up, not going west, not going east, some do, but mostly heading down south, the family of Ham. Cush is Ethiopia. Cush's sons, Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Sabtika, Rayama, and the sons Sheba and Dedan settled Arabia to the, from the south up, in fact, if you read those names, it really starts from the southern tip of Arabia and heads north by name, right, it marches right up to the southern part of what's the land of Israel today. These are not, note this, these are not Shemitic people. They're not of Shem, they are of Ham. They are Hamitic people. And I point that out because much of this region that was settled by the Hamitic people is Muslim today. Don't immediately assume that if someone's Muslim, they're Arabic. They're not. Not necessarily. Now, a, a large swath of Arabic people are Muslim by religious decision, by religious upbringing or choice. But to be Arabic doesn't automatically mean Muslim. We're talking not culturally now, but religiously when we talk about Islam and the Muslim people. So the Hamitic people settled down through much of this region. You get down to south of Saudi Arabia, we think of Saudi Arabia as, well, that's, that's purely Arabic. Not necessarily. Some is. Some was conquered later on. But as you hit, head further and further down south, you get more into the Hamitic people down that way. Are you with me? Are you awake? Just check it. Put became Libya. No offspring are listed for Put. Mizraim is, or Mizraim is Egypt. And from here, what I want to do at the end of verse 7, I'd like you to skip down to verse 13 for a moment. Verse 13, Mizraim, talking about him, became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lahabim and Naphtuhim. Let me give you a little piece of advice when you're studying the Hebrew Scriptures. Anytime you see the I-M ending to a word, it's im. It's not im. There are no seraphim. There are seraphim. There are cherubim. And when you see that I am, it typically is a plural form of the word. So it's a plurality. When we talk about the cherubim, it's always more than one. There's never a singular cherubim. There's more than one. Even though the singular cherubim has four faces, but let's not go there now. So you've got this em meaning a plurality of, of individuals, of people. And that's what we're seeing here. You get to verse 14, and you have pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines, 
and Kaphtorim. This is important. These three sons, here in verse 14, of Mizraim, they were down Mizraim, which is Egypt, but these three sons, who we note here again in verse 14, Pathrasim, Kasluhim, and Kaphtorim, these three got on boats, sailed away from Egypt, and ended up settling the Isle of Crete. Because we know the Kaphtorim came from Crete. We know the Pathrusim. These three, again, in verse 14. So note that in your Bibles. They moved out and they were the people who settled Crete. They became the Cretans. Now there's, there's Cretans, which is a different word. That's with an I, and that's someone who you don't really want to have a conversation with. Kind of an imbecile. Cretans are simply those who lived on the Isle of Crete. And that's the people mentioned there in verse 14. Pathrusim, Kaslohim, and Kaphtarim. Why does that matter? Because note what it says, from which came the Philistines. Here's where the table is instructive to us and important. These people sailed from Crete back across the Mediterranean Sea and settled on the west coast of Canaan. They are not Shemitic people. They are Hamitic people. They're not Shemitic in that they're neither Jewish nor are they Arabic. So, so today's Palestinians are Arabs. So, so today's Palestinians cannot be the ancient Philistines who came from Crete. I understand this runs completely against the political current, but they can't be related to the ancient Philistines as their exploitational leaders claim. Yasser Arafat was the first one to claim that in the 1960s. It was not, even among Arabs, the Arabs didn't claim they were ancient Philistines. The people living in Gaza, Arabic peoples, the people who were living on the West Bank, they didn't see themselves as ancient Philistines. They were Arabic. They knew they were Arabic. In fact, primarily Jordanian. They became refugees after the War of Independence and then after the 1967 war, the Six-Day War of Israel, they became refugees and Yasser Arafat brilliantly began to say, we are the ancient Philistines, we were here before Israel. And that lie has been bought today, but today the residents of Gaza and the West Bank are primarily Arabic, aside from the Israelis who live on the West Bank, they are of Jordanian descent. They are not ancient Philistines. The ancient Philistines were wiped out. Why is this important? I, I'm going to read you something real quickly that I, I ran across after, actually after all my notes were all done and I found this so I just stuck it on my phone. Slavoj Zizek. Sounds like a name that should be in our list, but this is a, a, a journalist for um, the Independent UK. All right, and in an op-ed that he wrote, just listen to this, he said, there, the, the op-ed is entitled, There is no conflict between the struggle against anti-Semitism and the struggle against Israeli occupation. That, that's the title of it. That's why it caught my attention. He said, listen to this, the trouble with Jews today, the trouble with Jews today is that they are now trying to get roots in a place which was for thousands of years inhabited by other people. Why does he think that? He's never read the Table of Nations. 
we have the proof, the evidence of who was there, when they were there, what happened there, and we're about to get more into that in just a second. But he said, that's why I find obscene a recent claim by Ayelet Shakid, the former Israeli justice minister, who said the Jewish people have the legal and moral right to live in their ancient homeland. To this, Zizek responds, what about the rights of the Palestinians? Why would he claim the Palestinians have right to the land? Because he believes the lie that they're ancient Philistines who preceded the Jewish people. They're not. They never have been. Now, as long as we're here looking, verse 15, at Ham's youngest, so let's stay right there, Canaan. Canaan became the father of Zidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and note this, the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite. The Sinite is the ancient Chinese. If you want to note that. And the Arvidite and the Zimmerite and the Hamatite, along with the Appetite and the Overbite and the Cellulite, the Frostbite and the Impolite, I think are part of that group as well. It continues in verse 18 saying, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. Now note this, it's important to get. There are so many things in this genealogy that are just more than names. See, this says the Canaanite were spread abroad. If I read that from an English perspective, my assumption is, oh, well then they didn't stay there. They spread out kind of like the people of Japheth or, or perhaps the Hamite. They must have headed in different directions, right? They were spread abroad. This is where being able to look up Hebrew words is such a benefit. Spread abroad is naputsu. And it literally translates scattered as in broken or smashed pieces of pottery. The Canaanites were smashed to pieces is how that could read. They were scattered abroad. They were, they were scattered out. Cheryl and I in a... In a Several years ago, we're, we're with a, uh, a tour guide. This is pre-Roni days. Um, and, and he took us out to see, um, where was it we went? On the West Bank. I'm mind-blocking because I'm tired. You remember he took us out there? Yeah, and it was where the, it's where the tabernacle rested. Shiloh. Thank you. Shiloh. <laughs> and he took us out to Shiloh. And I remember walking out to the place where they believe, and, and there's really strong evidence for this, that the tabernacle, that's where the tabernacle rested in Shiloh. It's this table land out there. So we're walking out. And as we walk, it's crunch, crunch, crunch under our, under our feet. And we look down, and there's bits of pottery everywhere. And he said, this is typical of an of a archaeological dig in Israel. They begin to dig, and suddenly pottery just starts to get unearthed because it, it breaks, obviously, very easily. It gets smashed up over time, but it remains. And so you've got these little bits of pottery. And he began picking them up and said, you, know, you can look at these, and, and there's so much they can tell you. Here's a handle. He picked up a, a handle from pottery. I don't know how old it was. Smashed like pieces of pottery, scattered like pieces of pottery, and that's what we're told happened to the families of the Canaanites. They would be smashed and scattered. Why is that important? Well, if you look back at Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, you hear Noah say, Cursed be Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. The children of Israel reading Torah, hearing Torah read, understanding this. They're going through Genesis 10. They didn't skip from Genesis 9 to Genesis 12 like so many Christian pastors. 
They pause, they listen, and they would begin to understand there was a curse on Canaan, and now Canaan is going to be scattered in a brokenness. And they would begin to understand now as they're coming to the promised land, which we'll see in the beginning of Exodus, they begin to understand God's wheels of justice began moving a long time before, very slowly. The Lord told his people ahead of time, indicated to his people ahead of time, these people, Canaan, are going to be smashed. They're going to be scattered. In fact, if you skip over to Genesis 15, which I know we're going to come to quickly in a matter of weeks here, but Genesis 15, verse 18, note what God says to Abram, to your descendants I have given this land. I would like to go look up, what's the guy's name, Zizek or whatever I the op-ed columnist, I'd like to just quote to him Genesis 15, 18, which tells us, God said to your descendants, I have given this land. Who gets to decide who lives in the land that we call the land of Canaan? Who gets to decide who lives in Israel? I've given it to your descendants, Abraham, God promises. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and right there is how we encapsulate 300,000 square miles. And he says the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite and the flashlight and the termite. God said all these people who are living here right now, it's not their land. I have given it to you. I have given it to Abraham and all those people would be scattered, would be smashed, would be broken to pieces. Exodus 34 11, be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day, God said. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite and Jebusite. And for those who say, I think God's judgment of the Canaanites is too harsh and unfair, listen. From Abraham all the way to Moses, Canaan and the people of the land of Canaan and the people who settled there, all the ites that we've been looking at, had over 400 years to repent of their sin-saturated culture. We don't know what prophets were sent. We don't know what conversations were had. Because we're focused on Abraham and the people of Israel. We're going to follow their story. But for 400 years, the Canaanite was in the land exercising brutal child sacrifices. Sexual depravity, nearly unparalleled, although America's on its way. Pagan idolatry. And all this went on. God waited 400 years. How long would you wait before judging such sin sickness? And then he sent Israel to be his sword of divine judgment. Now, there's one more son of Cush that we have to deal with. I promised you on Sunday that we would go back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Slide back there. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod, his name means rebellion. And that's exactly what he led. He was known as a mighty one. Mighty one or mighty ones. A mighty one is a gabor. Gabor in the Hebrew. Mighty ones, plural, is giborim. 
And if you look back at Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the Nephilim are referred to as Giborim. So it's the same word now that was used of the Nephilim, those supermen who grew up, I, I believe, and, and we looked at this, because of the relation of fallen angels with the daughters of men, the Nephilim are called mighty ones on the earth. And then you come here and Nimrod is a Gabor. He's a, he's a mighty one. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying Nimrod was a Nephilim. In fact, I think I made my position on this clear. I, you can disagree with me, but I believe that all the Nephilim were wiped out in the flood. And that there wasn't a trace of them to rise up later. And we'll have that discussion another time. But what I'm saying is, like the Nephilim, Nimrod was a tyrant. That's what Gabor means. Mighty one, mighty ones. Gabor, Giborim means tyrant or tyrants. And that describes Nimrod. His name re means rebellion and he's called a tyrant. It's a negative uh, word or name in the Hebrew. He's also, the Bible tells us, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The word before there is lipene, which means against or in the face of. This tyrant, this rebel tyrant in the face of the Lord. Are you getting a picture here of who Nimrod was? Got all up in the face of God. He's been called by Jewish rabbis the hunter of souls. Because this mighty hunter... He was a flesh and soul hunter. By the way, the pagan king of the gods and the patron deity of Babel had a name that you may have heard at some point in your school years, the name of Marduk. The god Marduk, god of gods. You know where Marduk comes from? Its etymological background is Nimrod. Marduk comes from Nimrod. I know it sounds different, but that's where it's drawn from. And Nimrod elevated himself as God in Babel. And as Marduk was worshipped, it was a worship of Nimrod following his death. The god Marduk. Now as I said on Sunday, I believe when you look at these things and the negativity that is embedded in the Hebrew here, that he may well have been the first man inhabited by the spirit of Antichrist. John said, 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and even now that many Antichrists have appeared, from this we know it's the last hour. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now understand, to deny that Jesus is the Christ can be done a couple of ways. One way is just to say, I don't believe Jesus is the Christ. So you're denying that. Another way is to set yourself up as the Christ. Be careful, because by considering yourself the savior of your own life, you're denying Christ. To look to someone other than Jesus is to deny Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And so the one who denies him as the Christ, Nimrod set himself up as the mighty one. Set himself up as the glorious leader, leading the rebellion against God. And John says this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And Nimrod denied the Father, absolutely, in the building of, of Babel. 1 John 4, 3 says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And don't just think spirits in terms of demons and angels. Think spirits in terms of people. Because those who deny Jesus, those who will not confess Jesus, are not from God. 
And you know, there are a lot of Christians who spend a lot of time listening to people who don't confess that Jesus is of God. Giving a lot of credence to people who write brilliant books and literature and, and who teach well and who have, seem to have wisdom. We'll listen to them on the airwaves and yet they deny Jesus is from God. Why are we even listening to such a one? But he says, this is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. So here's the thing to understand about Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist. Antichrist will be a man, but there is an Antichrist spirit as John makes very clear in his letters and that Antichrist spirit is past, present, and will be future. At least until he is thrown into the lake of fire. He has existed for a long, long time, and some like to say this, and I would agree with this, that Satan, not knowing when God's Messiah would come, had to, in every generation, be ready to go. So the Antichrist spirit was ready to go, ready to tag whatever individual Satan would deem appropriate at that time, and we've seen many Antichrist representations throughout history people who set themselves against God set themselves against Israel and I'm just telling you tonight Nimrod is the first verse 10 tells us the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar from that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth Ur and Kale and Rezin between Nineveh and Kale that is the great city this should tell us something. This is fascinating reality about what Nimrod did related to Israel. He began his kingdom at Babel, Babylon. And from there he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Do you see? In 722 BC, who destroyed northern Israel? Assyria. Nineveh came down and wiped out the northern kingdom, hauling them off across the desert, by the way, with fish hooks in their jaws. And then in 605 BC, Babylon came across and invaded Judah. And in 586, destroyed Jerusalem, raising the first temple to the ground in ashes. What I'm telling you is Nimrod was the founder of Babylon and Nineveh, the two great cities that came against God's people. That's what an antichrist spirit would do. They became, Babylon and Nineveh, the point of the shaft of the satanic spear of Satan's diabolical, genocidal plan to exterminate the Jewish people and to destroy God's plan of salvation to the nations. By the way, Nimrod married another rebel, one not unlike himself, you all know we've talked about her recently, the mother of pagan idolatry. We looked at back in our Revelation study, called herself the queen of heaven, Semiramis. After Nimrod's death, she claimed to be pregnant miraculously with a child that she named Tammuz. And I'm not going to get into whole, the whole story tonight. We're too close to Christmas and I don't want to ruin it for you. <laughs> but if you want to think about this and take a look at it again, go back to the Revelation studies. We did three different studies that, that dealt with this. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, that I called the Dark Age of Thyatira. And you can look at that and find out more about Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz and what took place there. And then we studied in Revelation 17, two more studies, Crushing Religion 
and the desolation of Mystery Babylon. And in those studies, we looked at it. And I just want to warn you, if you want to listen to those before Christmas, it's going to ruin your Yuletide. I'll leave it at that. But remember in all this, that Satan is standing front and center. Remember that Satan is the one who is the recipient of another curse. Not the curse of Canaan, but the curse that God brought right into the garden. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Remember the proto-evangelicum? And so Satan, hearing that curse, knew that there was going to be a seed of woman that would crush his head. And from that point forward was looking to crush the seed of woman. Looking to destroy the plan of God. And Nimrod was ripe for the picking. Nimrod was Satan's guy. Again, a tyrant, a rebel against the Lord, a builder of the nations that destroyed Israel, founder of Babylonian paganism, and husband to the high priestess Semiramis. It's quite a pedigree for a rebel. At minimum, Nimrod was an early type of Antichrist, but I think more likely he was possessed by the Antichrist spirit that Satan has had to keep in play across generations. And his capital on earth was and will be Babylon. Chapter 11, verse 1. Skip there, look at this now. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down. Remember Sunday? I told you the most significant four words of the entire story of the tower and the city of Babylon are right there. The Lord came down. It's the centerpiece of the structure of these nine verses. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built The Lord said, behold, they're one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And we were laughing about this today in staff meeting because it is absolutely crazy that people would think that the Lord came down because he was worried about what man was going to do. He was threatened. Oh no, they're building a tower. Get some perspective on a teeny speck of a planet in the middle of the broad universe, you think God was worried? I, I still, I see the, the almighty hand coming down and just going, poink, like a marble, the earth is gone. Oh, they're building a tower. Gotta stop them. They're a threat to, they're not a threat to God. And what I pointed out Sunday, and I hope you heard, is the reason the Lord came down is because the Lord is full of love and compassion and grace. The reason the Lord confused the languages was to stop the onslaught of sin. 150 years after the flood, they're already rising up in pride. They're already right back to the same stupid human tricks. And God says, i got to stop this now because people need more time to get saved. Salvation of the nations. He came down and saw the tower. He said, behold, there are one people. He says, come, let us go down. Verse 7, let us, he says... And confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them, verse 8, from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, let us go down the Trinity, Yahweh, Jesus, the Spirit, the Lord came down, which is the point of the whole story. But I ran you through it again because Babylon from its inception has always been Satan's capital city. And it stands against God's capital. What's God's capital city? Jerusalem. Babylon is named in the scriptures 296 times and much of the time in connection with evil, in connection with wickedness, with what Satan is up to. By contrast, God's capital, Jerusalem, is mentioned 818 times in the Bible, not once in the Koran, but 818 times Jerusalem is in the Holy Bible. Zion is the name for Jerusalem 162 times beyond that. In Psalm 48, verse 1, it says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. You know, when we go up to Jerusalem, my heart starts to pound. And it's not because Jerusalem is more beautiful than any other city on earth. It's got a, a very unique beauty to it. But as we draw near, you'll recognize we are coming into the location that God has claimed for his own. We come to the location that Jesus is going to live to rule and reign from Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. God's capital, God's city. And yet these two cities are set against each other throughout the Bible. Jerusalem and Babylon. Babylon always trying to pridefully build itself up and Jerusalem ultimately coming down as a bride. Right? Revelation 21 verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Why is New Jerusalem made ready as a bride? Why does New Jerusalem remind us of a bride? Because that's where the bride's going to live. That's where the church is going to call home. Hmm. Jerusalem. All right, back to Shem. Chapter 10, verse 21. A little jumping around, but I think you're up to it. Genesis 10, 21 says, Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and your Bible might say the older brother of Japheth, children were born, but it should be, and the brother of Japheth, the elder. And we pointed this out in a previous study, but Japheth would be older. He is the elder to Shem. Shem is not the firstborn, Japheth is. Ham is the middleborn, or the, or the lastborn, and then Shem is actually the middleborn. But it's dealt with the way it is. Japheth first, because Japheth is the firstborn. And then Ham second, because Basically, in the toll dote of the sons of Noah, we're moving them out of the way. We're, we're saying, this is where these people came from, but we're moving them aside now to deal with Shem. Because Shem becomes the focus, at least his lineage. And Shem was the father of all, note this, of all the children of Eber. And you might want to underline that. Eber is Shem's grandson. But he's mentioned here, even before he's going to be mentioned again, because this is where the name Hebrew comes from. Shem is the father of all the children of Eber. That would be the Hebrew children. And when we get to Genesis 14, verse 13, you'll note there that Abram is called Abram the Hebrew. 
So he is of the lineage of Eber from Shem. And this is the line to which the Bible is now turning. Verse 22, the sons of Shem were Alam and Ashur and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. Aram is, by the way, the father of the Aramaic people, the Aramaic language, the language Jesus spoke. The common Aramaic language spoken in the first century, that's coming out of the people of Aram. Verse 23, the sons of Aram were Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. Does anyone remember who lived in the land of Uz? Don't say the wizard. <laughs> Job. Job lived in the land of Uz. Job chapter 1, verse 1. So we should find him somewhere in this list. I hope so. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. He had a very successful series back in the 70s. Arpachshad became father of Shalach. Shalach became father of Eber. And there's Eber again, father of the Hebrew people. The two sons that were born to Eber, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. And some believe that this verse refers to a time post-flood when through cataclysmic events and ice ages that the continents divided, that God began to actually break apart those continents. And so they say, well, Peleg was alive. That's when the earth was divided. And that's possible. The name Peleg gives us a couple of definitions. One is divided, and the other one is earthquake. So both are possibilities, that is, earthquakes and continents being divided. But, but the other thing is that Palag in the Hebrew is a name that, or a word that describes divisions of languages. If languages are divided, it's Palag. So Peleg, Palag, is it the division of languages on the earth, which happened at Babel, which would fall right around the time that Peleg was living? Or was it that the continents and the earth itself was divided at that time? Let me give you my best informed answer. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it could go either way. Verse 26, Joktan became the father of Almadad and Shalef and Hazar Maveth and Yira and Hadaram and Utsul and Dikla and Obal and Abimael and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. Or another way to say that is Job. So conservative scholars, and I agree with them, believe that this is Job that we're talking about here. Job from the land of Uz. And all these were the sons of Joktan. If you keep going, verse 30, now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Safar, the hill country of the east, Safar, the Sephardic Jews come from Safar, come from the east. So the Ashkenazi Jews coming from the west, Ashkenaz, and the Sephardic Jews coming from the east from the region known as Sephar. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Again, no other ancient record does this. None even come close. But now after the side trip to Babel there in the first, 11, or first nine verses of chapter 11, we're going to come to the next toldot in Genesis, which is the toldot of Shem. The fifth is the toldot of Shem. The fourth was the toldot of Noah's sons. 
Remember, I've told you what told out is. It's the what became of. So now we come to the what became of Shem. These are the records of the generations, the told out of Shem in verse 10. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became father of Arphaxad and he had other sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and became the father of Shalach. Arphaxad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shalach and he had many other sons and daughters. Shalach lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shalach lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, some believe was the first pirate. And he had other sons and daughters, just seeing if you're with me. Verse 18, Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Reu. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Reu and had other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and became the father of Sarug. And Reu lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarug and he had other sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Saru lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor and he had other sons and daughters. I don't know about you, but this is waking me right up. <laughs> Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Stop there for a moment. Notice as I ran through those names that there's something happening here. That the duration of life is falling off generation to generation. We see this. We see Shem lived 600 years. Arpachshad lived 438 years. Shalach lived 433 years. Eber outdid him. He lived 464, but then Peleg only lived 239 years. Reu lived 239 years. Serug lived 230. Nahor would live 148. And finally, Terah would live 205. So we're watching this lifespan of humanity drop dramatically over these 10 generations. And by the way, if you do the numbers, what you'll discover is that Shem the son of Noah may actually have outlived Abraham. And it's interesting to recognize that. We often think of, wow, we've crossed all these peoples and all these generations and all these distances and Abraham was so far removed from Noah and the flood. He may have known Shem. They certainly were alive on the planet at the same time. In fact, during all of Abraham's life, Shem was alive. Shem was still around. Hey, Shem, tell me the story of the flood again. When I think along those lines, I realize history is not as vast as sometimes we think it is. We're tied back to the beginning pretty closely. It's not that hard to track these things. Now, I want to I show you something here, and, and I, I don't want to put too much stock in this. I just found it fascinating. I'm reading through these names. I'm looking at the, at the list, and I began to think, okay, it's interesting, once again, we have from the descendants of Shem to Abram, we have 10 generations. You remember the last time we had a 10-generation list? It was Genesis chapter 5. Remember the sons of Sheth, the, or the line of Seth, Adam, all the way down to Noah. It was 10 generations that are listed in Genesis chapter 5. Well, if you were here when we studied that, you know that if you take the names 
and look up their meaning and line them up, you can read a sentence made up by their names which declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's stunning. If you missed that study, go back to Genesis 5 and listen to it. So all this is running around in my head and I began to think 10 generations. I wonder what these names mean. And so looking them up, let me just give you the meaning of the names and show you where I think this goes. You've got Shem, whose name means name. Okay, Hashem, the name, is what many conservative Jews or Orthodox Jews will refer to God as Hashem. So Shem is just the name. Arpikshad means boundary of the Chaldeans. Shalach means missionary or emissary. Eber, now Eber's interesting in and of itself because it means the region beyond, but it comes from a Hebrew root word which is abar, and abar means to pass over or to pass through. Passover, to be the Eber, the, the father of the Hebrews, and then have that name that means Passover. I, I find that fascinating. Of course, I geek out on these things. Peleg means divided. Reu means friend. Serug is translated branch. Nahor, I like this one, means snorting. <laughs> Nahor, gazuntai. Or, or literally, it also can just mean breathing hard. So when we say snorting, it's not like blowing through your nose. It's snorting like a horse that's working hard. So, you know, it, it indicates kind of a, a, a working, a breathing. Terra means wandering spirit. And finally, Abram is elevated father, which is ironic because he was married to Sarai, who was barren. What would it be like to live your whole life with the name father, but you cannot have children? Interesting. I wonder if that haunted him and Sarai through their lives. Your, your name is what? Abram? Elevated father. Of course, God knew exactly why the inspiration came to Abram's father to name him that. Abram, by the way, has another meaning. Not only does it mean elevated father, it can also be translated shield. 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 If you put it all together, and this is just, I, I haven't found this anywhere else, it's just Rick thinking, which can be very dangerous, ask my family. Put it together and what you get is the name went into the boundary of the Chaldeans to call an emissary, to pass over a region beyond. And he was divided from home and family to be the friend of God through whom came the branch. Breathing hard, Abram was a wandering spirit, yet the elevated father produced the shield of his people. Now I've had to add a few words to make that sentence work, but wow, the name goes into the boundary of Chaldeans. Calls an emissary, we know that's Abram, who would pass over a region beyond being divided from home and family. Everything that he knew was divided from that. He was called friend of God. And through that lineage would come the one that the Bible calls branch, Jesus. Breathing hard. Why breathing hard? Because Abraham was at work, man. He was constantly moving. He was a wandering spirit. And yet the elevated father 
And he did produce the shield for his people and the shield that is absolutely a description of God himself. Genesis chapter 15, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So I think, and just maybe you're a wackadoodle pastor, but I think that the 10 generations here speaks of God's plan with Abraham to go get him, bring him back, and through the line of Abram would come the branch, the shield, none other than Jesus. And verse 27 says, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. The father of Milcah was Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his son, Abram's, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now, this is the sixth toldot of the Genesis record, and we're going to come back to it on Sunday. But I want to leave you with one final thought before we pass out test papers for a brief quiz on all these names. <laughs> We've come to Abram. We have traveled in these first 11 chapters 2,000 years. We come to Abram, it will be another 2,000 years to Jesus. Since Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. There's a pattern here, folks. Having been here roughly 6,000 years, at least from the beginning of scriptures and as explained in the Bible, which I just take at face value, we're on the edge of the 7,000 year, which I believe we will recognize in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And then you get to the 8,000th year, which we won't even get into. We're going to head right on into eternity because the number eight, that indicates the infinite but for all of that, what's interesting to me about Abram as we get into his story and we'll begin on Sunday to really look at Abram, Abraham, I just want to tell you ahead of time, don't expect him to be a shining star. <laughs> he's not. He, he's a good guy, but, but he, he's tarnished. But there's something unique about Abram in all of the Bible a description that's given to him. It's not man of righteousness, though some would call him that. It's not father of the faithful, though some call him that. The very best thing that I can tell you about Abraham is this. He comes to be called the friend of God. The friend of God. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7 did you not, O oh our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, God says. And Yaakov, James chapter 2, verse 23 says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Three times in the Bible, Abraham is referred to as the friend. It is the best title for Abraham 
friend. The friend of God. Are you a friend of God? Do you think of yourself that way? Disciple, student, follower, studier. One who bows before and all that is good, important. But do you ever think, do you ever stop and go, wait, I'm, <laughs> I'm the friend of God. I'm one of his friends. The best line in Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, my opinion, is the line that sings, faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. I just love that. There's something homey and warm and loving about that. Faithful friends who are dear to us. Many of you are faithful friends who are dear to me. Some of you are not. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But you understand, many of us have that. We've got the faithful friendship going back years and years. I'm looking at Russ over here, and Russ and I go back pre-bridge by four years. We've been friends for 20 years, bro. That either says Russ is incredibly patient, <laughs> Or I am. I don't know. One of the two. Faithful friends. I mean, I love when the Bible takes all of the, the grandeur and the glory and the names and the meanings and all the stuff. And then we just narrow down and we land at Abram, friend of God. It's just a friend. By the way, one of the worst lines in Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is, if the fates allow. Who wrote that? The fates allow. It's stupid. The table of nations in chapter 10 indicates the Lord God's intentional invitation to salvation in Jesus Christ. Why? So that we could, like Abram, be his friends. Friends of God. And the toldote of Shem that we read in chapter 11 draws a straight line to the righteousness in Christ. So we've got salvation declared for the nations. Righteousness through the line of Shem in Jesus. Why? Because God saves and God makes righteous so that like Abraham, we can be his friends. And if you're uncomfortable with the idea of being friends with the creator God, listen to Jesus who said, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Father, that is amazing to me. To be a friend of God. Wow, thank you, Lord. Thank you for friendship, for relationship. Lord, when I think about what you went through to call me a friend, it blows my mind salvation that came through Jesus, the righteousness that came through Christ, and now I, at the end of this, am saved and made right with you to be a friend. I pray, Father, tonight that our friendships would reflect that. That our friendships, one with another, would be holy, as is our friendship with you. That our friendships, one with another, would reflect faithfulness, as does our friendship with you. That our friendships one with another would be filled with unconditional love in the same way that our friendship is with you, Father. Lord, we look at all these names and we travel down all these genealogies. And we come down to Abram and the most significant thing about him as you show us is that he is your friend. And that tells me that there is something thicker than blood. And it is faithfulness in relationship.
Father, I thank you for friendship that we have with each other, but I most of all thank thank you for friendship with you. And I pray that this would define us, Lord, as people on this earth, faithful friends of our loving Father. We bless your name, Jesus, and we thank you for all that you've shown us tonight. And we pray, Lord, we pray that you're pleased with our hearts as we look to you, our greatest friend. In Jesus' name, amen.